Welcome back to this season of VMP Anthology. I'm your host, Torre. In this episode, we tackle the third set of records in your VMP Anthology box set, The Piano and Future Shock. These albums represent the breadth of Herbie's sonic pushing, as The Piano is a solo piano record, and Future Shock was the first album to meld jazz and hip-hop together. Both of them are groundbreaking in their own way. In this section of the podcast, we hear from Herbie on how the piano came to be and from fellow pianist Robert Glasper, who talks about the album's mastery. Then we hear from Herbie about the making of Future Shock and close the episode with a lengthy, awesome interview with Grandmaster DXT, the DJ and turntablist who invented the sound of scratching on the Future Shock record. Here's Herbie again. piano really bold statement because it's just you and i wonder what impact being in japan and recording it had on what came out of you well a lot of people had had been asking for me to do a, a solo piano album uh and I wasn't interested. I like playing with other musicians. I like the interplay, you know. I like, you know, feeding each other ideas. And uh, so, I mean, I, I, I did uh, speak like a child, which was in a way my answer to that, because I'm the only one that solos on that record. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I have a... A, 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 you know, a rhythm section behind me and, and, and three horns. But by the time I got to Japan, uh, and I'd been to Japan uh, many, many times, uh, starting from uh, 1964, I think was the first time I went to Japan with Miles Davis's band. And uh, anyway, um, I was asked to do a direct-to-disc record as a solo. And in thinking about what some of my fans wanted, and I thought, okay, okay, you got me. <laughs> it's time. It's time. So, so that's, and I was interested in, in just the, the whole, I, I like technology, but in a way, this is like non-tech because it's really old style that they cut the record as you are recording it. They cut the recorded version instead of putting it on tape like they uh, had by the time I um, started making records um, and then pressing the recording afterwards. Um, they wanted to do it really old style and that is cutting it directly to the master disc. And it means that I have to, and, and, and it, was, it was an album too. And um, so as a matter of fact, 
that record, the piano, was a, really an experiment in Japan because they were, and I didn't know at the time, preparing to make a CD. And the, what I actually got from Japan in the beginning was a CD, like an experimental CD before CDs were out commercially. I think there were only two of us that made uh, that kind of experiment. Um, and, and actually, for a while, I had that version of CD, which can't be played on any device because I don't even know what the sampling rate was. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, you have to know what that is in order to be able to, to play it on a, on a, on, on any kind of device. But anyway, um, so, so that was a, a great experience for me. I mean, I, that really put a, uh, that put the pressure on me to uh, wait a certain amount of time between the end of the first tune and starting the next song. And to do that for the whole side of a record it's not an easy thing to do. And to be able to stop at exactly the right time that the that was the ending of the record. But that's how I, I, I recorded uh, the piano. Sonically, what were you trying to do there? And why did you even think like, let's just do one just me? Well, it was the it was the what was then CBS Sony Records that wanted me to do that. That was their request, and and I, I had you know a pretty sizable amount of, amount of uh, of fans in Japan at the time. You know, the Japanese public is full of jazz fans. Uh, I, I think maybe in the, in the world, uh, Japan has a great many jazz lovers and and kind of high end sound lovers with high end equipment. And um, France has a lot of jazz fans too, and so does uh, so does Germany. Um, but Japan, for a small island, I mean, they got a lot of people that. That love jazz, and so um, I just took it on as a challenge. That was that was the main thing, and thinking about the fact that okay, it's time for me to give in to this whole idea of, <laughs> of doing a solo piano record. That, that that was what it was about. There's not a lot of solo piano Herbie out there, you know, at all. And when you hear it, I love the piano album. I actually play one of the songs from there 
a lot in my show, in my one of my sets, um, Sunrisa is called. Um, it actually is called, he, he, he recorded it again. It's two, it's two versions of it. One version is called Trust Me, and it's on his album from 1978 or 79 called uh, Feature Don't Feel Me Now. And there's lyrics in it, there's lyrics, and he's singing on vocal quarter. Then he redid it, you know, and it, it's called uh, Sun, Sun Reese. I think it was, I think he wrote Sun Reese first, and then when he put lyrics to it, called it Trust Me. But anyway, uh, it's an amazing album. It, it's, it's a very rare glimpse into Herbie playing solo piano, and it's, uh, he just tells an amazing story when he plays. You know, when, when, he, when he plays solo piano, it's just, it's a story and it's a vibe and it's, it's, uh, it's in the moment and it's for the moment. You know what I mean? You could tell it was very, uh, it felt like it was off the cuff. A lot of people, piano players, especially when we do solo piano records, when we do solo albums, that's some stuff you practice for for a long time and then you do the record. You know, it felt like Herbie had a plane to catch and he just sat down and just was Herbie and didn't think about it. And it was so amazing. <laughs> He was like, he was on the way to leaving and they were like, Herbie, can you do a solo album, a solo piano album real quick? He was like, oh, okay, sure. And did it. And it was amazing. And it just, it was just that. That's what it was. You know what I mean? That's what it felt like. That's how everything feels like that for me. But with Herbie too, it's nothing's never, it never sounds rehearsed. It always sounds like I'm giving you true art and, and, and true fearlessness right here in this moment. You feel honored. I feel honored every time I hear a, piano, a Herbie piano solo because I know that he's trusting me to be okay with the fact that he might mess up at any moment. This is Herbie Hancock. Future Shock was a really aggressively different statement. And I mean, like, I can remember sitting in the kitchen watching that video, partly like, what is this? And partly horrified. You know, me and my sister were like, yo, this is the shit. And my mom was like, what happened to my man Herbie Hancock? You know, and, and it's a record that really just shocked people impressed people, blew people away. It, it became a hugely important part of hip hop culture. Um, talk about making Future Shock. Why you, why, why were you, what were you even listening to that you were open and going in the hip hop direction? Well, what actually happened was I heard uh, a song by uh, Malcolm McLaren, uh, Buffalo Gals. Mm. And it had scratching on it i'd never heard it I'd, I'd heard something about scratching but i'd never heard it and and somehow maybe it was on the radio or something i, I heard this song and it had that sound in it and it made me think about the mwandishi band which was a far out space band and we used to take you know anything any any a rock or something and put two rocks together to make a percussion sound or, or or any two pieces of wood. We had wooden flutes and all kinds of other things that people that invented, invented that we we used to play this space music. And I was thinking, uh, scratching sounded like something we would use for that kind of a spaceman. 
But what happened was uh, I had hired this guy, his name was Tony Milan, who um, helped me because I lived in L.A. and my manager lived in, in San Francisco, David Rubinson. And Tony, Tony Milan was a really clever, really smart guy that, that kind of kept his ears open for what was happening underground. And, and he was the one that uh, uh, brought to me um, Bill Laswell and Michael Beinhorn, who were record producers, but they also had their own bands and they were doing some new kind of cutting edge underground stuff. And, and uh, unbeknownst to me, he uh, got in contact with them and told them that I was making a record and that they, he thought that they would be great for this this record that I, that I wanted to make, and um, so, so then they agreed to it. I didn't even know anything about it, right? And then Tony came to me, told me what he had said to them, told me that they were cutting edge. It just made made me intrigued, and and then. They came to L.A. to play some, just some elements that they had put together. And the first thing that they played for me had scratching on it. And I knew I wanted to do something with scratching. I said, yeah. And actually, the first thing they brought to me was... You know, <laughs> it was Rocket and what became Rocket. And um, when, were you, when, did, when you first heard that record, when the first thoughts of like what it was becoming, like, what did you think? Because that's that record is different for the world, much less different for you than what you had been doing. Well, I had been doing a lot of things. I mean, I, 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 I like doing things that I haven't done before. And, um, and I had great training and support from Miles Davis, who also likes to do new stuff that's challenging and that hasn't been done before. And, and for me, I took it up, took, uh, Rocket on as a as a challenge. I mean, doing the whole album was a a, a, a challenge, and it, and it was exciting to me to put something together that I hadn't hadn't heard anybody else do. Uh, and and that's where I always like to be, you know. That's 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 what makes my blood pump. There's a there's an aggression to that record. It's very musical. It has a structure, um, but there's something very aggressive and strong about it. I mean, like what what did you what did you love about it? I, I'm trying to picture the moment when you're coming to the end of it and making the end of making it, and you're listening back to it, and you're like, "Yeah, I think we're there. I think we got it this time." Well, I, I, no, I, I didn't even think of it that way. I, I was thinking uh, more in terms of I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking it was going to be a hit song. I had no idea about that. I, I never think like that. But I, um, I was thinking that as we, as we were putting it together, 
it had a um it had something something that was i, I don't know magical to it maybe I, I, it's hard to put into words um it, it was a challenge for me but by the way I, I was already into synthesizers and i was already trying to create new sounds and and i found special sounds for that i was able to create those those things but the the structure was different than anything that i had done before um i had already done some funky things before but this wasn't exactly just that um it had um oh and by the way um i purposely like to s- slip in some things kind of underneath the obvious uh that people wouldn't uh that i thought people would never know that i slipped this in right <laughs> uh and and um i could have had made the melody uh start with a lead in to the tonic note which which would have sound like do da do da do di di like do da do da do da 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 but i didn't do it like that i started with a pickup that's the key note of the key that we were playing in da da and it and the next note is in musical terms which would be born to most of the people that would listen to this is the ninth or the second and and uh you usually didn't find that note being like the main note that the melody is based off of you know as the first main note of the the tune but the rest of it is 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 something that uh would be what naturally um people could hear kind of naturally but somehow they they were intrigued by something in it but maybe that's one of the things that intrigued them without them being able to explain it uh uh musically cuz people didn't usually like that <laughs> I mean, is it? I mean, I, I mean, I guess. I mean, there is. Is it, it doesn't even matter to say like, is it a jazz record, or does that not even matter? No, doesn't matter. It's a lot of things. I mean, it's 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 hip hop. It's it's jazz. It's elements of R and B. It's I don't know if you would call it a pop record as such. I mean I guess the main thing it fits it is is the hip hop category and that's that's when I got some training in hip hop it was the time that I did rocket and then then uh that's when I started really learning who some of the rap artists these were the early rap artists at at the time who they were like Africa Bambada and 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 many others in um it was a whole scene that i was it was foreign to me and and uh i was able to to 
make this record because of people like that that had developed that scene. And it became such a huge hit. It just, because at the time, the hip hop movement was underground. But after Rocket, it didn't stay underground. It was. <laughs> Grandmaster DXT. Who, who was, before you got the call to work with Herbie Hancock, who was he in your mind before that? Oh, I was a huge fan. When I was a young, young child, uh, I used to watch Don Kirshner's rock concert and uh, another one, uh, Midnight Something, I forgot what it was called. And... Uh, what what happened on there was uh, one, the, what got me to watch it was my mother was a huge fan of LaBelle. My mother's a singer. And so I'm, I'm from a, you know, entertainment family, uncles, musicians, art musicians. And so that was normal. And then one night, you know, Herbie came on. Now I knew his music because we all had Chameleon. We were younger and speak like a child. And those those records were played in my house. And so uh, he was doing this concert on a late night special, I think it was called. And he did this trick with the synthesizer where he made it breathe. You know, he just stood back from it. He went. And it was modulating with it. Of course, I learned later it's modulating with his and he just knows the timing of it. So he's moving his hands based on the understanding of the modulation. And I was done after that. I was like, wow, okay. And I actually said a few days later, one of my best friend, uh, one of my best friends, uh, Mr. C, Carter Allen, we call him Mr. C. We was we was sitting, we was laying on the on back on our backs on an abandoned car. <laughs> That's something we used to do. We used to pretend we were driving. We were too young to drive, so whenever the people would uh, leave the cars abandoned, we get in there and we spend the whole day in there driving. And we. I, we were talking about Herbie's concert, and I said to him, I said, man, one day I'm going to play with him. I said that to him. Really? And when he met Herbie, he said, man, this guy said, you know, with tears welling up in his eyes and everything, this guy said he was going to play with you, and he actually did Well, it. now, wait a minute. That That's kind of crazy because when you think back to the early 80s, and you're probably saying this in the 70s, right? I said this in... It was the 70s. I mean, like, these kind of... Don Kirshner's rock concert is the 70s. These so, yeah, kind of said musical that in mashups in general did not happen. People were kind of like, this is my genre, this is where I live. And there was certainly no, like, hip-hop meets jazz. <laughs> like, Toby, you're really thinking outside the box to have some thought of, like, I'm over here, I'm going I'm to link with somebody over there. Yeah, but keep this in mind. Hip-hop is just a term terminology the, the soul music was playing before we we renamed us portion of it hip-hop okay you know and so i'm into music so i'm thinking of just playing music not a particular style just playing music so i'm saying one day i'm gonna play with him 
regardless, you know, and, and my, my goal is whatever it is he's doing, that's what I want to do. I had no idea I was going to be a DJ at that time. Okay. So, so take me to uh, who, how does it come in? Is it a manager? Is it called directly to you? Like how does the conversation of working with Herbie start? Well, again, I, I became a DJ and I became a very good DJ and I practiced all day and all night and all day. Everybody thought I was nuts. And um, I ended up getting the call to play at a place called Negril in on 12th Street and 2nd Avenue, Manhattan. Um, the very first night of my set was actually the very last night of my set. Uh, I put one record on and when I looked up, the police department was standing on the dance floor. <laughs> and I said, okay. What record? It was actually, it was Madonna, dance and sing, everybody. Well, he See, that's why you got arrested. That's why you got shut down. <laughs> I'm playing, I'm playing. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I ended up, they ended up closing down the grill. It was over, never opened again. Uh, we went to Dance Teria. And we stayed there for a few months. And then that subsequently came to an end. And then the, while we were trying to figure out what to do, my, my girlfriend at the time <clears throat> lived on 19th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue downtown in Manhattan. And so up the street on um, 10th Avenue was a roller skating rink called the Roxy's. And so I said, I said, well, you know, they would go there every week. And I was like, wow, if... Uh, we can get something popping in here. This would be dope, you know? And so I, I spoke to uh, Blue and told her about the roller skating rink. And she went there and, and set it up. And uh, the rest was history. We, we started doing the Roxy. And while I was doing that, people started approaching me from all over the planet, uh, asking me to come and do sets. Could I come to this club and play? And then these... This guy from Paris approaches me. He's, he actually was from North Africa, Tunisia. Um, his name was Bernard Zekri. And uh, so he approaches me and he says, man, this is incredible what's going on here and what you're doing is great. And we, um, one of my business partners is starting a record label and he wants, he would love for you to become part of this label. A few other people, a gentleman named Bill Laswell is also uh, signing this deal. And we wanted to get all of you guys together. So we went and had this meeting and I met Bill and uh, Michael Beinhorn. And so we started talking about making records. I, mind you, I had never produced a record in my life at this time. Uh, I'd never been in a professional recording studio in my life at this time. I've just been in home studio home music setups with keyboards and drums and all of that stuff and recording in there, but not in a professional environment. And so I'm excited and I'm saying, Hey man, that, that, uh, I'm really excited. I definitely want to be part of that. And within, within a, a, a week, a few weeks to a month, maybe of me playing there, um, we kept meeting and then the name Herbie came up and they said, well, we've been offered an opportunity to uh, do some tracks for a project for Herbie Hancock. And I was like, wow, that's one of my heroes. I'm, I'm in, let's get it popping. And so everyone pretty much 
came with their own concepts. Uh, Bill and Michael laid out the basic structure. And, um, you know, no one understood what I did. So it was up to me to come in and add my own two cents to to the overall picture. And um, I didn't meet Herbie at the time. And so we all just did the music. We we did the records and uh, we sent it out. And uh, a few weeks later, we got the call back that uh, they wanted us to do the whole record. I finally flew out to California and I met Herbie. Well, so what happened when you met him? Well, I, I bought a crazy record that I did. My first in adventure in the studio, it, 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 you know, it was, I thought it was great, but, you know, I had no experience. So I gave it to him. He just listened to it. He said, oh, yeah, man, that's, that's pretty good, you know. I mean, I know it's terrible now, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we just talked. And he said, man, you, you're, you're a musician. I can tell by you, you, you know, you're talking. And by this time now, the whole hip hop thing is in full swing. And unfortunately, and, and not to segue off, but the, the, the nomenclature created a disconnect from the fact that it's just the same music, you know? And so no one knew how to approach through these particular so-called genres, how to connect. Because it's like, oh, he's doing stuff called hip hop. No, I'm just doing music. And the the the, the uh, spoke, spoken pictures and spoken graphics or spoken word over the music doesn't change what it is. It's music. And uh, Gil Scott and the last poets were doing that before we did it. You know, so there's there's no real disconnect. But somehow, consciously, it it, it they didn't people didn't communicate. So it was like, how are you going to work with this artist? Like. We're musicians, so uh, I'm actually a drummer, you know, and so and so pe- that's why people was like, man, your your cuts are so precision and precise, and uh, and you can improvise uh, with the turntables in a way that most cats don't do. And I said, the ones that do are the, you can tell they're musicians because they knew they know how to uh, improvise uh, as far as time, and they can hear where the one and it is you know, before they even drop it, they know instantaneously one bang, you know? And so these are the things when Herbie came to the club, he heard that in the way I was mixing the records. He said, man, you, you everything you did was perfectly timed. <clears throat> and so, and then he was a, he was a comedian like me. So I, we, we hit it off because we, everything was a joke. <laughs> and I think he had this, uh, it was a, a a release for him where, you know, he couldn't do, he couldn't be himself. You know, he, he clearly enjoys clowning sometimes. He's very serious, but he does enjoy making, cracking jokes and being funny. And and once you get him started, he won't stop. Do you remember any of the jokes or any of the funnies that came? Uh, I can't talk about those jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You're among friends. <laughs> no, no, no. We get a... Uh, and we get a triple X rating, <laughs> NC-17. I mean, some of it, you know. <laughs> well, let's talk about just musically. Because what y'all did was revolutionary. It was controversial. It was beloved. It blew people's minds. I remember in my household, I was, I was a little younger, but I remember Rocket coming on MTV. They played it all the time. I was like, this is amazing. This is blowing my mind. My mom is like, what has happened to my man, Herbie Hancock? He has lost his mind. So we were 
the, I think, a microcosm of what a lot of people are going through, that people were like, right. wow, Herbie Hancock is amazing. Wow, Herbie Hancock has lost his mind. Um, you know, it, it was, and, and the hip hop community just fell in love with the record, especially dancers fell in right. love with the record. And so just talk about how y'all went through the process of making it. And I'm just even curious, like, when you're working in an established genre, you kind of know, like, okay, this is working out because these beats compared to these other beats, these rhymes compared to the other rhymes or this melody line on the horn, you're in entirely new territory. Nobody's making music like this. So how do you even judge, like, is it coming out right? Is, you, you know what I mean? Like, how, how, how is, you know, how did, just the whole thought process. We just went for it. And my, everyone's input was unique to their abilities and their understanding of what was in front of them and how they would imply their thought processes musically to what was in front of them. And what was in front of everyone was the basic drum track and the understanding of where music was at that time. And it is it was your responsibility to interpret that and 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 uh, express it musically into the drum track, you know, into no one said, D, do this, do that, do this, do that. No one said that, you know, it's just, I just did what I felt belonged in, in the song. And mind you, the scratch solo is actually one take. It's one take. And, um, the reason why, because I was very upset when I got there to that session that day. I had been robbed at gunpoint a week prior in my own neighborhood by, and uh, some of the accomplices were people I knew. And so I was hurt, devastated, you know. And a week later, I got, you know, this time to do what you're going to do. And I, I really, really, I not that I wasn't into it, but I was very upset and I was very emotionally traumatized by what had happened. And so I took a cab from the Bronx to Brooklyn, got out the car, went in the studio, went through, listened to a couple of records, put it on and did it. And when I, once, I, once I played the sound, they went, that's it, everybody, even Mr. C was there, that's it. And that was it, man. One take. And, and I'm grateful now that that happened. Even the robbery, it, it helped me through a lot. It helped me understand a lot of things. And it gave me that extra process and development in, in a very short period of time to walk in there and, and do what I do. The, help me understand what you said. The robbery, you're saying it helped to focus your mind? It, it, it taught me a lesson taught me what I need and what I don't need to be me. There were the material things that I thought I needed. I don't need them. All that stuff was gone. I went in there and did it. And I never looked back. I never thought I needed any of those things anymore. I recognized that, you know, what I need is to just do what I do. And that came without any of those things. 
And so the materialism uh, that I thought I needed, and I was young. So, you know, I had the big dookie chain with the name and all that stuff. And, you know, and now if that piece is, is immortalized, so to speak, because it's gone, but it's, it's still there forever, you know, and it's just a symbol now. And it's a reminder to me that um, I was born with everything I need to be successful. Do you remember any musical sort of conversations that you had with Herbie while you were going through the record, just sort of to help us understand the process and what y'all were trying to accomplish? Well, it, you know, Bill and Herbie and Mike did most of the communicating and they spent most of the time with Herbie during the process of this record. Um, I talked to Herbie in, in more of a post environment uh, because no one understood what I was doing. And so it, it, there was nothing they could talk to me about. It was up to me to, to do it. You know, I had to come up with it because it turned out that the record was based around me doing what I do. And so none of them have ever done it. There was nobody at the time in the known universe that did that. And so it was up to this one guy on planet earth who to, to take the challenge, step up to the plate and get it in. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing the trust that Herbie had in you not knowing how to evaluate what you were doing and giving you the freedom like, do you, man? Well, I, th- I think it was more of his conversation. Bill had to trust in me. Herbie didn't know. And so Herbie said, okay, I trust you, Bill, to whatever it is, this is, it sounds crazy, but whatever it is, I, you know, I trust Bill and, and Mike to to bring this. And they obviously convinced him, like, trust me, what he's going to do is going to change everything. He's only, He's been doing it at this club in Manhattan and everyone is talking about it. And if we can get that, what he does on a record, it's going to be special. And so that's what it was. So he trusted material, which is our, our whole production. When... So when this came out, it was a bomb in terms of the culture responded to it in a huge way. You know, a lot of people loved it. A lot of people were like, what the hell is this? You know, some people were like, this is great revolutionary music. Some people were like, this is not music. What did you think? How did you feel when, you know, this wide array of responses and love and hate was coming back about like, what is this? Well, personally, I was a little confused myself. Um, when, I, when I heard the final mix, I was like, man, what did they do to my song? <laughs> you know? And I had to recognize one, it's not my song. Two, I was too immature to understand the bigger picture uh, musically uh, where this was going. I don't think, I think no one really knew the magnitude of this particular performance. No one had a clue of what was, it was, what was going to happen. And so for me, I, at first I was, you know, I, I wasn't totally getting 
what happened <laughs> to the song, where it went musically. And then um, I was I was uh, I was living in on Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles at the time, and uh, I was I was upset because I I got the call to go do the Beat It video. <laughs> <laughs> me and Grandmaster Kaz, and um, we missed it. We missed the timing and did not make it down to the shoot to be in the video. And so, and then they, uh, someone brought, brought me the tape, the cassette of Rocket the same day. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, man, what the hell happened? You know? And it was just, I was just immature. And I was, I, I was thinking, uh, in a particular, my mind was in a particular mindset to hear something else um, as far as the mix of it. And, and then I, I had to say, you know what? I don't know, I, you know, and nobody does. So let's just see what happens, you know? And to my surprise, until all of, you know, we were all like, wow, okay. It's, it's, a, it's a monster hit. And I was gonna go, yeah, it is, yeah, it's dope. So I instantly went along with the program because, you know. I mean, you, it says a lot that the record is, like, whatever the world says, the record was made in a hip-hop idiom. And hip-hop yes. fell in love with it. And the break dancers who were kind of like the spine of hip-hop fell in love with the record. And there were, you know, breakdance competitions that was like everybody is – Splitting to this record, you know, um, right, right, to see right. the record embraced by hip hop in particular so right. tightly, like that had to give you a good feeling and let you know, like, yeah, you, you were on the right track. And, you know, it's a discovery, you know, and we were digging for gold and we found it. And when you're digging, you don't know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And sometimes it's fool's gold. And so only the people can tell you whether it's real or not. Um, it's very rare when you, you're digging and you know there's gold down there unless somebody put it there. And you know they put it there. If you don't, you, you, you're in the dark, you know, and you're digging and you're finding new ways to design your shovel, you know, to dig better holes and get faster access to it. But at the end of the day, you're digging you know, and then once you pull it out and put it on the table and the people examine it, then you know what you got. Um, and that's the way Rocket went. It was one of those things where it was, it was a very, it's a very special project. And that's it for this episode of the MP Anthology, the story of Herbie Hancock. This season of the podcast is hosted by Toure. It's executive produced and scripted by Andrew Ministorfer. It's produced by Ben Patterson and Karen and Otis Ratchman. Thank you to Herbie Hancock and all the artists who checked in from their couches via Zoom for this podcast. And remember, listen to more Mwandishi. <laughs>